Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm a dork living in Portland, Oregon, who spent too many years listening to podcasts and not doing anything creative. This is my attempt to rectify that, to create and contribute something where I talk to people about their cultural obsessions and try to give some recommendations of my own. Welcome to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. Can you hear anything? Is your radio on? All right, let's try turning this up then. Can you hear anything? Can you hear yes. anything? Okay. Yeah. Your uh, your your level is this one. Okay. Yours is number two in the middle, and mine is at the back. Okay. Okay. So there we go. So as long as everybody can hear themselves, because one thing I do remember from college radio is never let anybody talk who's who uh, talk who's not wearing headphones. And on that note, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else. Uh, welcome to uh, giving the mic to the wrong person. The brought to you from our spacious, sunny Portland uh, apartment studios here in the um, not terribly weathered today um, Port Pacific Northwest. I, as usual, am your host Jeremy, here with uh, new and old friends and guests, uh, talking about. Let's see, today we're going to talk about, uh, let's say, prof uh, professional media, I should say, class in uh, American media, and what kind of the increasing that professionalism that happened to them kind of changed, changes how we uh, we cover politics, and why you have incidents um, where you have multimillionaire uh, TV uh, newsreaders um, identifying more with the people they're trying to, more with the power holders than, say, with everybody else. And uh, unfortunately, this is also not a new thing. All right, going around the table, if new friends and guests, if you could introduce yourself to the viewing audience. Sure, yeah, I'm Don McIntosh. Uh, I'm a reporter myself. I uh, have been uh, pretty much my whole adult life. In the last 20 years, I've been a labor reporter, which is a rather unusual beast. I, I write for a uh, publication called the Northwest Labor Press. Check us out online, nwlaborpress.org. But basically, it's uh, you know news uh, from a class perspective about the labor movement uh, and uh, the things that matter to working people. Hi, Albert. Thanks for calling in. Uh, can you can you introduce yourself to our viewing audience? Hello, I'm Albert Lanier. I'm calling from Honolulu, Hawaii, which is where I'm currently living. By way of further introduction, I was a freelance journalist and writer for 22 years. I've been retired for two years here in Southern Honolulu. And um, I wrote for a variety of publications over my 20-plus year career. These included... Uh, here in Hawaii, Pacific Business News, uh, Honolulu Weekly, Hawaii Magazine, uh, vast majority is freelancer. I was briefly a staff writer uh, and reporter with uh, the Molokai Dispatch on the island of Molokai uh, more than 10 years ago. Just what brought me back here to Hawaii. I was living in LA uh, at the time more than 10 years ago. Um, my activities in Seattle is going to move back to Seattle. Um, so as I mentioned before, just to reca recapitulate that, uh, as a freelance journalist, I've worked at uh, Pacific Business News, Honolulu Weekly, Hawaii Magazine. Um, in the mainland, I wrote in Seattle and in L.A. And in Seattle, I wrote um, for a Puget Sound Business Journal, amongst other publications. Um, some other publications I freelance for, Asian Week, uh, in San Francisco, um, and let me see. Oh, I can't remember all of them over a 20 year career. Um, and so, um, now that I've been retired, I write a blog for, uh, medium.com or on medium.com. I've also written some op ed pieces for 
a local a news website here, uh, their community voice section for people who want to write some articles um, in the community. It's like, well, uh, it's, uh, that's Honolulu Civil Beat. Um, so, yeah, I've had a career of 22 plus years as a freelance journalist and as a writer. I myself have been thinking about lately is the uh, especially since <laughs> since American politics and rather American political culture is strangely somehow uh, re uh, relearning and reviving itself after a good what, four decades of uh, of just you know more abund whatever and but the idea of and because we were such a much more than it was even like way back when you had like a much more radical either uh you know vibrant activist and like uh labor movement we're you know we're, we're we are we're drowning in media and culture all the time you know it's it's <laughs> it's kind of a thing where like you know Guy Debord had no idea what was coming and uh and I always kind of wondered like what would happen if you would you know revived uh like somebody like Adorno or something and just gave him a uh, gave him a phone with Twitter you know how long before he would just run off into the uh, run off into the uh, into the desert screaming never to come back Hey folks this is Jeremy just popping in here if you like what you're hearing why not help us uh, make the show support us for as little as a dollar a month donated through our patreon which is at patreon.com slash giving the mic every little bit helps thanks i bring that up because i'm wondering if one of the things i was thinking about is like how the how the role of like the professional you know capital p professional journalist rather than say like a beat reporter has changed uh, along with over the last four decades changed with the how like you know uh, we both talked about and covered but also experienced american politics as this kind of like far off elite thing and well, I mean, I I feel like uh, actually the uh, profession is in pretty dire straits, uh, and and I say that as you know, basically someone, a lot of my colleagues uh, who were journalists five, ten, fifteen years ago are no longer journalists. They're working in PR. They're doing other things. I mean, the, the, the sheer numbers of of working reporters has has gone down really calamitously, and that has a lot to do with the death of uh, I shouldn't say the death, but the the great distress that print journalism has undergone because of the revenue model. I mean, we used to uh, make money uh, basically writing on the backs of advertisements, and now basically Basically, there are cheaper, more effective ways to advertise for pretty much everything online, uh, and uh, the, just the revenue model isn't there. I mean, uh, Craigslist uh, killed the classified ads, and so forth. And and so it's, I, th- I think it's been really interesting to see the you know media you know uh, ecosphere uh, in, uh, evolve uh, in in the wake of this. Uh, I don't really think there's been anything to replace it, uh, the daily newspaper or na- daily newspapers that we once had in this country. Um, but there you know there's there's certainly a lot of uh, online publications which are getting a lot of viewership. They tend to be national, and they tend to be sort of niche you know partic- appealing to a particular audience and so i think the whole the whole uh, sort of model of, of journalism is uh, as as a viable profession has become very precarious and i think and, and this is just a hunch I've, I've been watching this for for a while but i have a sense that p- for first of all anybody who's young and thinking about getting to journalism think twice either make sure you have that trust fund squared away or mm-hmm. or a, a partner with a with a good paying job but i mean it's, i do obviously believe it's a noble profession and one that's really important to democracy but uh just the, this, it's really a difficult time i think to to be a uh, a working journalist uh, so I guess what I'm what I'm sort of anticipating seeing is a uh, a new model where those who can afford to work for free or next to nothing because they have either parental support or indeed a trust fund are they going to be ones who who can be who, who can sustain it as a full time uh, gig? Um, that's obviously very uh, very troubling if if I'm right. So. Uh, thank you, Al. Well, yes, 
Well, I would state, well, let me just begin by, by stating my career. <laughs> I, I laugh because uh, when I when I heard what the gentleman just said, I, uh, it was quite sobering, but it's something I had considered. I was a freelance journalist for 22 years, and in 22 years, I never had a full-time job outside of the staff reporter position I had with multi-dispatch. I was still a freelancer. Because they said it was fine if you wanted to freelance and like you didn't get in the way of, in the way of work. But I, I was a freelance journalist 22 years and I never had, again, a full-time job outside of journalism. So in fact, I don't think I've ever had a full-time job other than being a journalist and a writer. It's quite staggering when I think about it, but I would agree that it's gotten much tougher to be a journalist because it's financially more difficult not simply for the legacy outlets and the traditional uh, news outlets like newspapers, um, and in some cases, news stations, you know, in some respects, but also because of the economy's changed a great deal. You know, we're living in a kind of low-wage economy overall, and this impacts, I think, every other industry because everyone wants to pay people less but get more out of their employees or people that they hire so it's in journalism it's made a lot more sense especially um with the decline of such publications as the rocky mountain news in the past number of years and shutting up some of these newspapers for them to move to a somewhat hemp oriented model in the sense that you look at freelancers or you look at writers you can just kind of hire by the pound and pay them a smaller amount of money and you don't have to worry about health care, providing health care. You don't have to provide, worry about providing benefits. Uh, you don't have to have fully funded staff positions. So this kind of uh, cheaper approach to the news is something that's been going on at a number of publications and a, a number of news outlets. They want to do more. And especially with the TV stations, that's been the approach too, because what you saw, especially with the 80s, is the move to um, getting content elsewhere, having people send in videos they shot of some news event. I mean, that was starting in the 1980s with the proliferation of video cameras amongst the population. So they was like, hey, if you were there at this uh, event or you were there at this activity or you were there at this incident, uh, send us your video and we'll credit you or we'll pay you or what have you. And so when you see what's happened, especially moving into the online era with YouTube uh, and Vimeo and other video sharing platforms, you're seeing people get out there with their cameras, uh, whether it's phone cameras or video cameras, SLRs or whatever, and shooting. So we've gone from the 1980s home video camera to now all kinds of phone cameras and video cameras and just regular SLR cameras. Um, being used and so we've moved from traditional journalism to uh citizen journalism in the sense of video and so what's happened is the models of of uh, of journalism have changed somewhat and it's moved in the direction of one of term it amateurism but uh, it's professionalism and non-professionalism and so uh, when you can get video content from other sources that aren't professional photographers 
or professional photojournalist or professional journalist, period, then you, that mentality then seeps into, well, can we hire people that maybe don't have journalism school degrees, but degrees elsewhere and, and bring them in? Or can we get people who don't even have any journalism experience and make them journalists and writers? I think that mentality sort of creeped into journalism, not only from an economic model, but also for a staffing model, employee model. I mean, and actually, it would go farther than that. I mean, there's actually an app now. There's a, a company that has an app where you download it on your phone, and uh, if there's something going on in your area, they'll notify you, and then they want you as the citizen journalist to go out with your uh, cell phone or you know your smartphone and take video that then you upload, and if they use it, they pay you some pittance for it and so forth. It's actually a union issue for the, uh, they call them photographers, but the camera people at the union, the few uh, unionized stations, uh, they're really fighting that because, it, again, it's, it's a question of, mm-hmm. of professionalization, which I think being on a podcast is an interesting uh, question. I mean, I, I personally believe in media in general. I think uh, I, I don't think it should be the exclusive terrain of credentialed individuals. I think everyone should be have an opportunity to produce media. We have uh, First Amendment in this country. We have the freedom of, uh, of the press, and it's extremely important our freedom uh, for those who don't have it. They would they would want that. So so that 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 said, I think that you know uh, you know we've just seen we've seen I guess such a uh, change in the media landscape. I, I do think that there was there's value to doing this full time. I think you gain uh, experience in how to how how to tell fact from fiction, how to tell when you're being uh, spun or snowed, I think that there's a there's a you that I just with anything uh, any anything you can imagine, uh, spending a lot of time doing it, it hopefully makes you better at it. Uh, I, I think mm. journal, journalism is an interesting one because you know we we actually had you know go back 100 120 years ago you had uh, you know multiple daily newspapers. Uh, newspapers were how people learned about the world they, that they lived in, and there was also the entertainment, and you know it was part of the cultural life of the community. Obviously, things came along mm. that uh, served that you know role uh, in ways that were more more to people's liking. So first radio and then television and cable and then, you know, the, the internet. And so I, I, it's, you know, it's, I don't want to be one of those who's sort of crying over the destruction of the, uh, you know, the, um, the buggy industry or something like that. I mean, they're, they're going to be, they're going to be changes, but I think that along the way we lose something too. And when, when it comes to journalism, I've actually, um, there's a sort of a, a little known history of the, the, the professionalization of journalism that I've, I've had an opportunity to learn over the years, which is, um, and just for those who are, you know, haven't thought about this, professional is a real thing. Uh, if you look at professions like uh, doctors or lawyers, you know, at one time, you know, a doctor might have been, uh, there was no, you didn't need a license to practice medicine, and some were quacks and some were good and so forth. Well, there was a project, it was really a political project by doctors to get organized and to, uh, to, to pass standards for their industry to say, well, you have to have these credentials, you have to go to medical school, school and so forth. And then we're even going to pass a law that says you cannot practice medicine or call yourself a doctor unless you've done these things. Same thing when, uh, happened with the, with the law profession. You, you can't just go and uh, out to a court and represent somebody, you have to have passed the bar exam and so forth. So there's a sort of like this apparatus that is built up um, to to improve the quality and fr- quite frankly to to improve the conditions of work uh, in those industries. Well, journalism, like many other uh, professions, had you know was uh, was undergoing a similar trajectory. And so you know it used to be if you look at the old movies, I mean journalism, uh, so called, you know it was a working class profession. You know the guy had his uh, his uh, derby and his flask, and uh, they sat around playing cards at the courtroom and so forth. Well. Later on, uh, you know, in, particularly in the 1960s and the 70s, you know, there was this there was this uh, sort of um, an effort to get it to become you know a traditional profession where you had to go to school and you there were all of a sudden there were degrees in journalism. What's that, right? And and by the way, that sort of <laughs> there is some debate within journalism about whether you're better off having a degree in something else or a degree in journalism. 
because ultimately it comes down to your ability to write and research and these kinds of things. But you know, so so that was sort of like the the apex of journalism as a profession is you're looking at the 60s and 70s and everybody's excited about the the power of exposés like Watergate, uh, and then uh, really uh, uh, what 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 people weren't seeing is that readership, print readership in particular, was declining. Print readership actually, believe it or not, um, I read a book about this a couple years ago, uh, hit its peak in 1947, and uh, and if you can believe it, the percentage of subscriptions of daily newspapers was over 100%. And the reason that sounds crazy, but the reason that's possible is because most households actually subscribe to a morning paper and an evening or afternoon paper. So that that was the level of uh, of people were you know reading the newspaper, they, were, they knew the name of their city commissioner. Uh, I'm not saying it was in any way a glory er- era. There are a lot of problems with that era, but they did actually have a lot of good news coming to their door uh, relatively cheaply. Uh, you know, the, that, that readership steadily declined after 1947, uh, really into the 1970s and 80s. It was just masked by what was also occurring at the time, which was mergers. I mean, we used to have two daily newspapers in uh, in Portland up until uh, the uh, mid-1960s. Uh, now, we, now we don't even have one, actually, the, which is embarrassing. But, you know, the, you know, an evil corporation that owned the Oregonian decided that uh, four days a week was enough for us citizens. You know, so, so, so there's been a decline in readership well before uh, the Internet came along to sort of, I don't know. Uh, it was like the, the strong wind that, uh, you know, maybe blew over the oak tree or something like that. I mean, I don't want to say we're dead, but we're in dire straits, and, and, and it's a problem. And obviously, I'm partial to print journalism because I'm a print journalist, but there just isn't, I mean, if you look at broadcast media, there just aren't the bodies. They're not there at city council. They're not there. If you have any idea of the value of journalism in terms of the, the necessity for democracy, you have to have an informed citizenry. What, 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 what use is the vote if you have no idea what the person uh, you voted for did uh, later on? And it's journalists generally speaking, who are following these folks if they're doing their job uh, and, and, and reporting on what, what happened afterwards. Yeah, the, the, Well, that saved me a lot of time. <laughs> I, I was going to talk about the his, some of the history uh, coming on here, but that saved me a lot of time. I'll go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, because one of the things that I've been thinking about is in that process of um, of professionalization, where you had actually, I'm going to read a. I'm going to read. I have a copy of uh, Lewis Lapham's uh, "The Wish for Kings: Democracy at Bay," which was pretty much just his creed tearing into uh, uh, everybody at the Beltway back in the early '90s. But he actually there's a there is a chapter called Rosencrantz and Gilderstern, which is just pretty much saying that every most people who you know or like you know attend these uh, these White House press conferences and whatnot pretty much are just kind of like. You know, well-coiffed fops and courtiers, and you know, um, and whatnot. But he actually, there's a, there's a, um, where was it? Where was it? Where was it? There's a chap. There's a bit in here about. Um, there we go. Uh, okay, here we go. The because he's talking about how he started out in like the uh, he started out himself in the early '60s, and there's a particular quote of like the people he um, he worked with. And just to, real quick, let's see. In 1960, most of the people working the seven newspapers in New York City understood that they were had more in common with vagabond poets than they did with diplomats, soothsayers, or court chamberlains. Many of them were self-educated, and because they had come of age in the 1930s and 1940s, they were schooled in the lessons of poverty and given a sardonic turn of mind. They hired themselves out as journeymen, not as immortal artists, and they tended to identify with with the crowd in the bleachers rather than with the swells in the box seats. With, few, with a few exceptions on the order of Walter Littman or Joseph Alsop, none of them would have described themselves as gentlemen, and if asked to state their occupation, they would have said reporter or newspaper man. The term journalist pertained only to Englishmen or would-be novelists. Uh, something, something, something... 
Uh, yeah, well, yeah, it's pretty much he says, yeah, it was uh, in the next the Kennedy's glamorous arrival in the White House coincided with the dawning of the age of the glamorous media. With the year of his election, the suddenly respectable, quote unquote, profession of journalism was attracting volunteers from Harvard and Princeton. The, the rates of pay kept pace with the expanding wealth of the communications industry, and by the end of the decade, the higher-priced higher operatives earning upwards of $500,000 a year found it easy to see themselves as the friends and the peers of oligarchy. There we go. So, nice little bit. So, here's, you know, hitchhiking on what um, our other professional journalist here has to mention about the history. A point I want to get across is not only did journalism move from... In, in my historical analysis, being an industry that had people who were basically not only working class, but also relatively not formally educated to becoming a profession. And if you have a profession, what you need are professionals and those professionals have to be educated. So the movement from simply being an industry to being a profession dictated and mandated the higher status of the practitioners. You needed educated practitioners. Thus, the, the reporter simply didn't need to be just a reporter. He had to have somebody with a corpus, a body of knowledge. He had to be someone who was not just capable of stringing a few sentences together, but having a depth of information and knowledge, almost like, uh, to use Frank Herbert's term in Dune, a mentat, the computer. So it goes from being an individual who is simply gleaning information to somebody who can provide information. And when you see journalists often on panel shows and cable news shows, they can spout a great deal of data, of a great deal of statistics, a great deal of information within three to five minutes. And that's what the journalist has become by nature of the upgrade, the boost uh, to professionalism professional they've become an educated practitioner um as as our journalist friend uh should i say my colleague there also noted this occurred in the medical profession and the law profession here's what i would say as to my position and maybe there are a lot of people out there who disagree with me but i find myself in the position of having even though i'm critical of what i call the dominant media and the major media, what is known as the mainstream media. I've had a career where I've had one foot in alternative media and independent media and one foot in mainstream media. And thus, I do believe in professionalism. I do believe in being an educated practitioner, not only because I have a bachelor's degree from uh, a liberal arts college called the University of Hawaii, West Oahu, but because I believe the journalist should be an individual who is not simply a reporter, not simply someone who gets facts, but who understands facts, who understands information, someone who is not simply the man off the street or the woman off the street. But can I, can I ask? I am oh. not a fan of citizen journalists. I don't believe in citizen journalism. Not because I have a problem with people going out and getting video and necessarily getting information and getting facts who don't have bachelor's degrees or don't go to journalism school. I didn't go to journalism school. I just went to school. Um, but because I disagree with people who are not professionals doing work that clearly professionals should do. Now, is this 
maybe am I an elite in saying this? Am I an elite elite? Am I uh, someone who is uh, someone who is uh, protective of the journalism profession? Yeah, I guess I guess I am. I mean, granted, I was a freelancer. I didn't write for the New York Times. I didn't write for Esquire magazine. I was a local and regional freelancer. But I believe in the professionalism of the industry. I believe in the profession of journalism itself. And I don't believe it simply because I believe in media. I don't. I believe in the, in the professional aspect, being able to get the facts, being able to have the education and intelligence to not only get the facts, but process these facts and to, uh, you know, uh, array it before a wide audience, the body politic of a particular city or nation. Um, so I don't believe in citizen journalism. Um, I wouldn't go to a citizen doctor. I wouldn't go to a citizen lawyer. I certainly wouldn't have a citizen architect working on my house uh, or on a house. Uh, so if we won't go with those kinds of individuals in our daily life, if you want professionals in every other aspect of life, but you don't believe in uh, professionalism in regards to journalism, sorry, I have a problem with that. That's just my stance. But uh, uh, Well, there's two things. Um, one, I was wondering if there is a demonstrable difference in the quality of journalism before and after the the professionalization of the industry. And that that's that's one thing and I was wondering if, if you guys had any comments on that. And then the other thing is that this whole converse, this whole question about whether or not that there should be industry standards. And I think that, that I think you can look to lots of other different types of work. They all have industry standards, right? Um, carpenters and plumbers and, you know, there's all kinds of licensures and stuff like that. And it's not I don't want to. I don't want to discuss this necessarily as like a zero sum. You know, they're mutually exclusive. Like you're either a citizen reporter or you have you went to um, NYU J School or something like that. Um, there's certainly mm -hmm. you could have variations on that. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's more. That's yeah. more what, what we're probably talking about. I, right. I I do defend citizen journalists. I I, I don't. I, I think. I mean, although obviously I have a stake in it, I want I want to be, be able to you know have a full time career and, and for people who be to be able to follow and and come in and and, and have full time careers at it. Is the revenue model is really the problem right now? But I don't. But I so I don't feel like the uh, the, the competition from people who, who want to get in is uh, is mostly what concerns me. I, I don't. I actually don't uh, believe uh, in in gate, gatekeeping institutions unless they're needed. I mean, I think it, it's valid uh, to want to have someone uh, to go medical school before they uh, tell you uh, you know what you can and cannot uh, uh, do uh, for pharmaceuticals or whatever I mean I want those people to have that knowledge I want to be confident in that uh, architect that my house isn't going to fall down I don't think that the same kinds of uh, dynamics apply in journalism I mean I think basically if you write stuff that's false and it's defamatory you get sued you know so so if you're a, a publisher you know uh, or if you're going to be financially liable you probably want that journalist to be uh, reliable uh, you know I mean I, hopefully the crowd will appreciate the difference between uh, good journalism and bad journalism. I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case. Uh, you know, and it used to be the case that because the uh, the limiting factor in journalism was who could afford to own a printing press, uh, there were very few entrants. But now, uh, you know, Jeremy has uh, looked on uh, Craigslist and gotten some very high quality equipment. He can be a podcaster. Uh, if I want, I can uh, buy a domain name and rent some space from a web host and be a blogger. You know, that that access I think is actually really important and and, and good. And and that I I think that many there are many today. 
who are uh, full-time professional uh, podcasters and uh, and journalists who g- got up because there wasn't th- those old sort of um, bl- uh, barriers, maybe. that You know, there are people who are probably doing it today who might not have worked out through the old system where you had to go and uh, work at a daily newspaper in a small town and work your way up to mm-hmm. a big, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. I don't want to necessarily mourn yeah. all, all, all of that. I guess I'm just, I'm more concerned about the sheer numbers on the ground and also just what's changing in our landscape. It's interesting, I think, um, you know, uh, I think one of the things that Jeremy wanted to talk about, too, is this notion that, you know, the sort of the, the riches of the very the very top tier uh, folks, that how that, that, that does uh, sort of prejudice them in certain ways towards some stories against other stories. Uh, it, it influences their worldview. I think one of, the th- one of the things that sort of bothered me and I objected to about the old uh, professionalization model is it was based in part on this notion of objectivity. So this objectivity idea, uh, you know, for a long time, you know, the journalists, they strive to be, you know, objective, whatever that means. And I, I just, I, I w- I've always been uh, a practitioner of what I consider sort of alternative journalism, where, you know, I, when, I, when, I, when I have my byline on a piece, I want you to know that everything in it I believe to be utterly and completely true. I'm not, I'm not skewing the facts to suit my points of view. Uh, I'm not uh, making up quotes or anything like that. I want you to believe my, my, I feel like my reputation depends on your ability to believe that I'm an honest person. It doesn't mean that you, uh, that, that, that I don't have a point of view. And I think if you, re- if you read my stories, you'll see my point of view. But I think, you know, and if you agree with it, great. And, you know, but the point is, I think that this idea of uh, objectivity I guess philosophically, it's not. I don't think it's possible, and I don't think it's desirable. Uh, each of us is trapped in a subjectivity, and we see the world from our perspective, and, and as the people that we are. And 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 then you know. So I don't think it's possible. I also don't think it's a good idea. Like, would you want your uh, local sports journalist to not care whether your local sports team wins? Do you want your medical journalist to not take the side of the uh, the healthy cells and think that the cancer cells <laughs> deserve a fair shake? Obviously, you wouldn't. But I feel like those those are sort of the assumption. So what we have instead is we have journalists sort of striving for this idea of objectivity, which really boils down to uh, what there's a um, uh, NYU uh, journalism professor named Jay Rose, and he calls the the view from nowhere. Basically, if you're the fish that's in swimming with the stream, you think you're objective because you know the, you don't see uh, contrasting. Uh, you you, you, don't, you know you're being validated by the herd. But I don't think that that's you know <laughs> I, I guess I, I just philosophically I just feel like that that you're missing something. And I've, what the journalism that I admire truly is uh, journalism that has a perspective but that also has fairness and has intellectual rigor and so forth. And I think that's actually in some ways what we're evolving to now with the prevalence of online media. There's a lot more uh, 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 sort of, uh, you're allowed to have more opinion, you're allowed to have a, have a point of view, I think, more than you did when there was just one uh, uh, daily newspaper and it was trying to appeal to everybody. Well, I will say this. First of all, what people have to keep in mind is that objectivity is not simply a sort of rubric, a sort of intellectual standard, a sort of philosophy. It's also a business and economic choice on the part of print newspapers, but also to some extent, at least early on, radio and television. Objectivity made sense because many, many decades ago when you had newspapers that had the names of political parties on them, like a Democrat or Republican, you kind of knew what their point of view was and what generally they favored politically. The idea of sort of a partisan approach to journalism is actually really old in this country. There have always been sort of partisan newspapers and partisan news outlets. But what happened with the move to objectivity is it allows newspapers and other outlets um, to 
go to advertisers and say, look, we're people who are here to get information. We're not here to take sides. We're not here to validate who's right and who's wrong uh, or validate who's the best uh, kind of philosophy or the worst kind of philosophy or the best kind of life or the worst kind of life. We're just here to look at the facts and we're here to get the information and we'll let people, as that phrase is known, we'll let the people decide or you let the individuals decide. And so it's a perfect way for news outlets, uh, newspapers, for TV stations, for radio stations, even some online outlets to state to advertisers to get money from advertisers. Because for advertisers, it's a matter of what audiences they can reach and what they can get for their advertising buck. And that's all they care about. Um, so objectivity, as far as I'm concerned, has always been an economic tactic. It's always been an economic tool of newspapers and TV stations. The change, I think, over the years has come from the move to subjectivity, at least in the TV realm, radio to some extent, because the so-called equal time rule for the FCC, at least, I guess, in radio, maybe TV, had sunsetted the rise of Rush Limbaugh and, of course, the rise of Fox News meant you had this sort of unipolar, unilateral, partisan view of quote-unquote news or quote-unquote talk radio or opinion. So opinion became important. Uh, information became less important. And that thus becomes a profit-generating force unto itself because then you reach specific audiences that only want to hear a unipolar, unilateral, partisan point of view. And they will tune in to Fox News. They will listen to the Rush Limbaugh show. They will listen to or see whatever kind of show or host echoes their political and personal point of view. So objectivity is a commercial, or at least it was seen as a commercially viable uh, philosophy and choice. Now, Subjectivity is seen as a commercially viable choice. Um, and I think we're getting back to, we're getting to a place where now it's a bit muddier. There's some objectivity, there's some subjectivity. I don't think any one of those have completely dominated at present. Some people would argue subjectivity dominates. Others would say, no, no, we still have some objectivity left. I think both are kind of vying for the soul of journalism, the soul of the news business, the soul of the fact and information part of the news business. And I think that's what we have now. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind because a lot of people will go out and criticize the news business. You see a lot of people online, a lot of people offline saying the mainstream media is rigged and the mainstream media is corrupt and you can't trust them. I always say to people, it's not a matter of trusting the media. It's trusting the information, the news, the facts. That's what you trust. You don't have to trust Anderson Cooper. You don't have to trust Don Lemon. You don't have to trust Rachel Maddow. You don't have to trust um, Chris Hayes. You don't have to trust anyone. Uh, you certainly shouldn't trust Sean Hannity or, goodness forbid, Tucker Carlson. You don't have to trust any of them. What you do is you take their information and you have to set up your own filter to siphon this off and go, is this valid? Is this invalid? Does it square with known facts? Does this square? Is this nothing more than fiction? That's what you have to do. And I think that's the, one of the problems that we have with the populace at large in this country now.
is that they're not able to do that. And so what we have is this kind of subjectivity in television and there's some objectivity elsewhere. Like I said, I think objectivity and subjectivity are now vying. Which one will win, I don't know. Well, I, I remember a number of years ago, I was on a panel with uh, the uh, public editor of The Oregonian, which is the uh, the, the, the dominant print uh, newspaper in, in Portland, and uh, talking about objectivity and so forth. And uh, she articulated basically that their 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 business you know model and, and their then their professional model was to kind of a, to try to appeal to everyone, and that that sort of the objectivity is sort of a strategy within that <laughs> realm. I, 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 I would I would say that didn't do necessarily a very good job of that, uh, and and that also yeah. that, that there's a sort of a, a, a second part of that, which is to try to offend no one, and and the, and the problem is that works as long as you have, but that works as long as you have the big middle, as long as you have some sort of consensus in society and so forth. But what we've really been seeing See, in the, the last thirty forty, well, that's, that's the thing. The but we but we're seeing in the last thirty forty years really uh, a polarization, you know, the splitting of the of the country mm-hmm. uh, into you know sort of different yeah. camps where you, you really can't appeal to a mass audience. There is no mass audience. There's niche audiences and there's and there's sides. People are taking sides. Yeah, mon- monoculture's gone. Um, one thing I think one of the, one of the things it's that I, as uh, Oscar Wilde said, uh, there are it's it's not a matter. I'm just paraphrasing here, but he said it is not a matter of an audience. It's a matter of audiences. But go on, sorry. Getting back to what we're talking about about the capital P professionalizations, but also, you know, not just having like trade standards, but I think it's the, um, but when you start having, you start taking, um, because American in, we can, this might even expand things a bit out of our reach, but that's never stopped me before. We start, when you start invest, um, involving, not widespread, but very in-depth programs, say at a lot of like high status American universities, the culture of that changes a lot of things because now it, it starts, um, and what's one of the things that, that about with, with professionalization is that because you had you now had a, instead of like having like working class folks you now had a lot of like not just make middle class folks but a lot of like um, people who are far more leaning on the um, you know into the culture of like whatever they believe whatever they believe before they get into the they get into the ecosystem and they come out like full on like corporate strivers who identify because uh, identify with the upper thing and I think this uh, one of the many ways that this comes through today. Is that um, most media folks, because they are of a different, uh, you know, they're much more used to dealing with like class stri- uh, corporate striver types. They, for example, completely have no idea how to talk to like, you know, d- to do say labor reporting anymore. So, and all of a sudden, if you start now mm-hmm. having a whole, all of a sudden, a rebirth of mass teacher strikes, you have a whole hell of a lot of. Um, I think, Ken, you might be able to talk to this, too, about just from your own experiences of, like, people coming up to, you know, try, you know, whatever coverage around, even in, like, Portland area stuff, of, like, you have a lot of, like, very uh, high-status, well-paid um, media commentators and whatnot, almost, like... You know, not being like I said for, to them because of the, you know they're uh, they're ensconced in ensconced in this in this hierarchy. They can't you know for them politics is all about you know kind of like you know which which Avenger is your favorite rather than being able to handle mass movements. And so they're not able to talk to just reg, you know regular like rank and file labor folks. Um, uh, Candy, if you uh, any idea? Well, um, this does kind of tie back to what we're talking about. In terms of industry standards, so I'll give you an example. Um, during Southwest Washington, uh, we had a ton of strikes. Um, it was six or seven strikes 
that whole period was a blur. I'm sorry. But uh, I do remember talking to uh, reporters and, you know, I deal with education, public education. So um, there's a lot of sunshine laws um, that, that, that deal with, because it's a public finance, um, they're, they're public financial institutions. So everything's pretty transparent um, in terms of, uh, for instance, how a neighborhood school spend their money or a neighborhood school district spends their money. And so, you know, the, the strikes that we had were labeled, uh, you know, more traditional strikes. Um, in West Virginia, for instance, you had people, uh, they were uh, effectively striking against the state um, because of uh, lack of state funding. It, in Southwest Washington, the school districts had the money. It wasn't a state issue. Um, it was just a matter of, of them basically forking it over uh, to the people who actually run the schools. And so, you know, having these conversations with, with uh, these journalists who were, I think, sympathetic to teachers in general, I don't want to say... Teachers, not necessarily strikers, but <laughs> teachers. The concepts, of the the concept that public, you know, there are a lot of like public high school teachers as a, you know, that just exist. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, me telling them like, no, 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 they have the money. Like, I have it right in front of me. I have so many spreadsheets. I'm telling you right now, I know for a fact that they have the money. And then them in this. um what is it thrust for for uh, objectivity saying okay well now i'm going to go to i'm going to go um talk to the administration and you know they're going to get the narrative that they're broke right and it's like well no you can actually go and request this shit you can see where the money is i could highlight it in a big red marker <laughs> uh, but them still feeling the need to tell you know quote our side versus their side when the facts going back to what albert was saying um, are, are pretty transparent. And so, like, you know, in that particular example, it would have been good to have a journalist that maybe had some sort of um, financial background or, or, you know, have some way of, of um, d- deciphering like a like a local budget, a school yeah, budget. Financial literacy. Yeah, financial literacy, um, which actually people criticize. I don't teach in schools. Right. Um, but... Well... Oh, go ahead, Albert. Oh, well... Labor is an interesting area. I think I'm accurate when I say this, but my understanding is that Teen Vogue magazine has a labor writer. Yep, Kim Kelly, among others. Yeah. That shocked me. When I heard that, I said, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that a fashion magazine has a labor writer, and yet most of these newspapers and publications across the country don't focus on labor, don't deal with working class issues, or issues of benefit to employees, even at numerous companies or corporations. That took me, I guess, took kind of the wind out of my sails briefly, if indeed that can happen to me. But it also tells you how far we've regressed in this culture, in the media culture, where labor issues and the issues of working class people really don't have uh, a seat at the table anymore. I mean... Well, to some extent, I mean, I I obviously, I I have, yeah, go ahead. It's an anti-labor culture. It's an anti-working class culture. It's an anti-union culture. And I guess as a former journalist, I shouldn't be subjective, but um, pretty, but I I can't, I can't help myself. 
I'm not sure I would entirely I'm I'm not sure I would entirely agree actually if I mean if anything so for right now for example you know poll public opinion polls are showing uh, generally an uptick in interest in and support for unions and that's been consistent now for a few years um, I mean I, I think that you know I, I uh, obviously I have a, a pretty pretty vested stake in, in this as a labor journalist uh, I uh, mm-hmm. you know I, I wish that my uh, that I had more competition I, I don't like it being such a lonely beat in some cases and and, and so so that, that that said I think that there is some fairness to the idea that you know the news is going to report what's news. Okay, it used to be that uh, labor unions could stop this country. You know, if a hundred thousand coal miners walked out, you might not have uh, a, a way to heat your house that winter. You know, if uh, you know the uh, unions were strong, powerful, and struck on a regular basis, it was unavoidable. You had to report that the phone company was going on strike because that would explain why people couldn't make a phone call, right? But right now, uh, you know, the working class is not uh, as organized as it once was. Doesn't have that power. That power to disrupt. Uh, the power to make news. Now, to the extent that they do, uh, all of a sudden, I think there's tremendous industry in, re- in reporting on it. So, for example, like the uh, very exciting strike wave that began with the West Virginia, the brave West Virginia uh, teachers that spread to, you know, Arizona and spread to Kentucky and then, in some respects, spread to, to Washington State, uh, you know, where, where Candy's employed. I mean, that I think that got a, a great amount of uh, interest in and, and rel- in my opinion, a rather positive reporting. I mean, I think that most people in this country uh, at this point are aware that uh, the, the sort of broad middle class uh, you know, anecdotally or otherwise, you're, you, everyone, I don't think it's news to almost anyone that, that regular working people have been falling behind the last 40 or 50 years, and, and I think people are bothered by that. And so at every level, I think that there's a, there's a latent kind of support for unions, even though working class people are not organized uh, today like, like they used to be. So I kind of feel like, and I, and I wanted to share too, there are, there are exciting uh, developments even in uh, the media and the online media. So for example... Uh, in the last two years, we've seen a wave of unionization of online media. Slate organized uh, a union. Vox Media, Vice Media, The Intercept, Thrillist, Huffington Post, Think Progress. Uh, Gawker, of course, no longer with us, but they did unionize. Uh, Salon.com, The Guardian U.S. Edition. You know, there's and 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 I'm I'm missing about four or five that have happened in just last month. The Onion unionized. So I think what what we're seeing is actually a pretty interesting development where the young people, mostly young people, who are going in uh, full time uh, in the online media. They they they're in a, they're existing in a world where they're they've got college debt and they don't necessarily feel like they'll ever be able to buy a house or raise a family or anything unless they you know unless, unless mommy and daddy can write them a check. They know how uh, you know I guess this podcast yeah. how fucked uh, yeah. their generation <laughs> is and 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 they have this vague notion that at one time the way to get the goods the way to improve your life the way to have a voice and some dignity on the job was to unionize. So I, I guess I just think I don't want to paint it all as doom and gloom. I actually think they're very exciting and positive. Developments. Developments in the media and including uh, labor uh, coverage. But, but here's the point that I want to make. You're talking about the populace. I'm looking at the culture overall, and more specifically, the, the culture of the media and news outlets, newspapers, TV stations, that sort of thing. That culture, as far as I'm concerned, is anti-labor, is anti-working class. Um, and that's why you don't have the kind of coverage and you don't have the kind of interest from a media standpoint. In the population, yeah, I would say that that's, I think you have some valid points there. I think that's accurate. Just as you can see with the rise of Bernie Sanders, that there is a, a real appreciation of what's wrong in this country in regards to economic issues, in regards to issues of wages, in regards to issues of uh, jobs themselves and the kind of conditions uh, with jobs 
Uh, the fact that there are that it's a kind of low tier or low wage job economy, uh, part time in terms of jobs, um, you have that kind of awakening and that realization and awareness among the population. So it's not that it's not there. My point is that the culture, the corporate culture of news and the corporate culture uh, within the sort of uh, information um, agencies and the information uh, businesses like uh, newspapers and TV news stations and even some online sites uh, tend to skew anti, anti-labor and anti-working class. And I, I would link this with the professionalization of journalism over the years. Right. So what we have in the journalism profession are more middle class and more upper middle class people writing for newspapers, for news magazines, and major, uh, major news outlets that shape opinion, that shape uh, perceptions and conceptions of this country. And I think that's largely what's gone on in regards to this, this nation in regards to news, especially in regards to labor. And you also don't have a labor press. One of the things that was that you had in the U.S. as well as the U.K. is a, is a at times, very strong labor press, uh, newspapers and other outlets that reflected the viewpoints of unions and of uh, organized labor. And that's less the case now. Glad that there's still a labor newspaper in the Northwest like, like uh, the gentleman's here. Candy? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd also just add to that that, you, you know, unions also had the ability to print their own stuff, too. Um, and that 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 has definitely been in in, in decline. Um, I just want to add, just you know, as a silver lining, aside from the fact that Teen Vogue has gone full communism, um, which I think we all find very heartening, is is also the fact that Trump's you know Trump's open hostility um, to even the corporate media. You know, um, Jeffrey St. Clair, who's a co-editor of uh, Counterpunch. Um, said stated he's like well you know the the, maybe the fact that um uh, he's been so aggressive uh toward outs like cnn which is you know full corporate uh maybe that that will actually provoke um this entrenched media class to actually grow a spine i mean i don't know if that's the case but you know I, i could see some potential there yeah the um two uh two quick bits one uh Fully, uh, was it full, not full revere? What's the um, what's the term when you have to when I have to uh, full full disclosure? I am uh, I am a paid subscriber to uh, Northwest Labor Press. To yeah, the uh, the fact that uh, the other bit is that yeah, the fact that Teen Vogue wasn't just doing kind of I don't want to say softer, but definitely much more like. Um, you had, you know, not only, you know, the a range of opinions there, but you had, they went from just having like, you know, uh, someone like Lauren Duca writing their stuff, which is much more of a, I don't know, white liberal feminist to someone like, like uh, Kim Kelly, who was at some point just spitting mad theory and like laying, you know, using her thing. I mean, she's full on, um, she's full on black metal arch- uh, anarchist uh, going on and like, you know, using her columns to explain to the readership, like, okay, here's who Lo- Rosa Luxemburg was. <laughs> this is a, here is a, here's what a general strike is. And Five all- fast facts about Marx. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, which was like, you know, fuck yeah, make modernity. Modernity is terrible and weird, but at least it has um, some interestingly good developments. 
And then when she writes that, you know, it reaches an audience of, of millions, not only those who subscribe, but then it's uh, endlessly uh, shared and so forth. So, I, I mean, I think that sometimes there's a tendency among sort of, uh, there has been a tendency among sort of left-wing folks, which I assume is the uh, bulk of uh, Jeremy's uh, listenership here, uh, to sort of like throw up your hands and say, well, the corporate media is owned by corporations, they're against my points of view, and so there's no avenues for me to get my, my, my ideas out there. And I think that's actually totally, totally not the case. In fact, right now, I think it's a very exciting time. I think there's a lot of uh, interest in, uh, like, 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 I I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a great example. So I feel, feel like uh, what we're seeing is, well, first, you know, news obviously thrives on novelty, right? You know, for, for so many years, you, you know, there was this Overton window of the things that you were not allowed to discuss or whatever, you know, you know the manufactured consent was the way that uh, Chomsky put it, right? You know, certain things you just could never see that mm-hmm. reflected when you had three network television uh, stations, uh, you know, who controlled, uh, controlled what most of Americans saw. Now, there's competition for that and there's a tremendous interest in somebody who's speaking uh, new uh, ideas. Uh, she happens to be a very capable, articulate, uh, uh, forceful advocate for her points of view. Um, but I think there's just there's a there's a, a readiness to support that and a tremendous interest. She's followed around by media all day long uh, and all, all night. I I, pre- I presume you know. And so I, f- I guess I feel like uh, this is a good time for people to take seriously the, the avenues that do exist to get out uh, ideas that that you know that uh, were contrary to the, the the interests of the corporations who might own these media. The fact is, working journalists producers and so forth are sympathetic um, and they're ready to get on uh, you know uh, well uh, thought through uh, you know they, 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 they need to fill their their 24-hour cable cycle and they just they want to get people on uh, who uh, have something interesting to say the one, uh, even even the conservative media I mean there was this uh, uh, this uh, example I guess a uh, couple a couple of weeks back of uh, this Dutch historian who was uh, you, you you want to talk about that Jeremy um I can't remember his, Bregman. Yeah, Breg. I was saying I can't remember. Couldn't remember his first name, but yeah, uh, Bregman coming on is because of Taco Carlson is. If nothing, you know, both the stuff he covers is. It is at some point, you know, horrifying on a lot of extent because dudes just straight doing like straight doing like if not. I mean, it's not explicitly Nazi, Nazi shit, but it's full on. We're full on. I mean, the guy's doing like ex, yeah. full on like clan territory. This thing we really need a better. We really need a better term for the stuff other than white nationalism because that that lacks the punch. Crypt, crypto Nazi. That's yeah, right. Crypto Nazi or just full on clan well, shit. Because well, what doing. I noted, what I noted in my recent uh, blog piece uh, entitled "Upper Class Twit of the Year: The Real Tucker Carlson," is that I noted about Carlson is that his language. And the way that he looks at not only people of color, but other uh, people of other uh, class levels, whether it's working class or or, um, or the poor, his language is almost like that of uh, sort of the English imperialists, the, the sort of uh, whether it's the landed gentry or uh, any imperial officer of, of Britain in the 19th century, whether it's a place in India or stationed anywhere else in the English Empire, or the British Empire, I should say. So, I mean, to me, he strikes me not simply as white nationalist and white supremacist, but really imperialist. I mean, you know, to me, he just seems to be a 21st version of uh, Roger Kipling's White Man's Burden. 
he's a particularly odious, I think, member of the species. But the you know the, the, that particular part of the media uh, ecosphere is, is full of them. I was actually in uh, Salem, uh, Oregon, uh, visiting in-laws the last few days, and they have a billboard up there. Uh, and there's some uh, they had the call letters of the local uh, conservative radio station, and they had they had the images of the, the of the uh, the hosts. It was five older white men, including Rush Limbaugh. But you know they're they're very unapologetic about their views. There's kind of a um, there's kind of a I don't know a school where they all go to and say the same things and think the same thoughts. I think and 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 yet you know someone like Tucker Carlson, you know he uh, you know he's he's interested in novelty as well. He's interested in argumentation. So for those who don't know uh, what what happened, you know a few years or a few uh, weeks ago, this guy named Rudger Brett, uh, Bregman had been on. Uh, he, he'd been invited to Davos, uh, and apparently he uh, was quite critical critical of the uh, his millionaire uh, host sort of bo- uh, bit the hand that fed him and said that that you know they were a little hypocritical talking about global warming, for example, uh, and flying there in their private jets to talk about that. So I guess you know uh, there's someone like Tucker Carlson. They're always there. They love hypocrisy. They love to expose hypocrisy. He, so he was going to have him on the show, uh, and of course uh, Rudger uh, pulled a little surprise on him and uh, basically accused him of hypocrisy as well for taking the Koch brothers' dirty money and being a, a millionaire funded by billionaires. I mean, you are a millionaire funded by billionaires. That's what you are. And I'm glad you now finally jumped the bandwagon, you know, of people like Bernie Sanders and AOC. But you're not you're not part of the solution, uh, Mr. Mr. Carlson. You're part of the problem, actually. Uh, you know, Tucker ultimately got very offended and used some very foul language against the guy um, and didn't air him on his show and said, well, you're done. You know, you've missed your opportunity, uh, only to learn that the guy had been kind of, uh, I guess, recording it on his own and then released that, which went viral. Yeah, somebody in the control room was filming was filming the intro because he was the the the, uh, the, the Dutch uh, the Dutch economist was had to go to like a little like local local satellite station and uh, and just to beam in the segment. And someone in the um, someone in the control room decided to say, hey. We know we know this will never make the air, so they just filmed it on their phone. It's really entertaining and worth watching, just for those for the, for the value of seeing some really smug guy get taken down a notch and get and really be confronted with someone who's uh, questioning his uh, his assumptions and, and see him get defensive. <laughs> But I wanted to say, so, um, I mean, Jer- Jeremy, when you invited me on the show, uh, you know, you sent, you know, an email explaining some of what you wanted to talk about. I, w- I want to disagree just a little bit about, uh, about this. I mean, I do feel like when you're at that level, when you have a national audience of millions and a cable television show and so forth, yes, you're like, you're in a certain kind of elite. Uh, there's this thing called access journalism. I mean, to some extent, that's still a, a factor. You know, if you want to keep interviewing somebody, you can't really make them look like shit, uh, you know, when, when you do. And so there's a tendency to, you know, basically be a conduit for the power. Powerful, they're already powerful to get their views out there. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, they're human beings uh, who have some uh, sense of integrity, uh, even the conservative ones. You know, so so there is an idea the, of of providing a public service, of, of of being truthful and so forth. I don't think that their their richness or the color of their skin or their gender necessarily determines what they have to say. So, for example, um, I happen to be a bit of a fan of John Oliver uh, or Stephen Colbert, and I, with the help of Google, I determined that apparently Stephen Colbert makes fifteen million dollars a year. I think he came from humble origin or but he's doing pretty well. John Oliver makes $2 million a year. I love his show. Uh, you know, I think they can they can air points of view which radically undermine uh, the interests of the billionaire class while still themselves being rather well off. You know, Michael Moore uh, makes uh, a lot of money and, uh, you know, but he, he really does, I think, have a heart for telling working class uh, people's uh, stories and, 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 and writing injustice. So I think it's a little di- bit too simplistic. Sometimes we on the left want to say, well, be- again, because you're a corporation, because you know, you're on corporate media, that means you're just uh, unreadable 
redeemable and I'm not going to have anything to do with you. But I feel like we should be thinking strategically about the opportunities that uh, that access could afford us and, 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 and trying to get on uh, and get those audiences. Well, uh, if you don't mind my chiming in Go for um, it. here, my stance is a bit different because I'm someone as a freelance journalist for over 20 years, I think I mentioned this earlier, I had a foot in sort of in the mainstream. So there was a foot in the mainstream and then a foot outside the mainstream, whether you want to call it alternative media or uh, non-mainstream, marginal media, what have you. So for me, uh, I understand that as a freelancer, I'm not part of the corporate hierarchy. And so I'm, as I used to say is a slogan, I'm not owned by any corporation. But as someone who is a freelancer or was a freelancer, I feel that you can't cut yourself off, uh, at least from a business standpoint, from larger media. In other words, I can't go and say, well, I'm going to write for publications that will pay me, you know, $20 an article. I can't survive as a freelancer if I do that because... Sad to say, even though I'm not a right winger, uh, I when you're a freelancer, you are in business. And so unlike most journalists who are staff journalists, for example, freelance journalists essentially are business people and have to think in a business mindset uh, and have a, a sort of economic and fiscal reality to uh, their choices and the things that they do uh, as reporters and as writers or, or as um even people online. So for me, it's never been, it, it has been both either or, and it has been neither nor. So I'm in a weird position. I really realized that as a freelancer, especially after two years of retirement, I really realized I I was in a weird position and have been in a weird position because as I can't be, too, I am critical of the mainstream media and I'm critical of the major media, as I call it, what I call the dominant media. I am critical of it. But I can't go too far criticizing the major and dominant media because I might write for one of these large publications someday or work with one of these large outlets someday. And so you have to be, I think, flexible, at least in my view. There has to be a flexibility factor. Uh, criticism's fine, but absolute, you know, the idea of trying to pillory and absolutely destroy the media uh, doesn't work for me. And again, I guess it goes back to my belief in the prof in the professionalism of journalism and being a professional journalist. Um, I, since I believe in the professionalism of being a reporter and a professional standards, not just going to J school, which I never did, but also getting uh, you know, getting jobs and writing for newspapers and magazines, which I did do. I not only believe in the professionalism, I also have to be flexible in terms of the outlets I do work for or have worked for and what I could work for in, in the future. But that doesn't mean that I approve of their modus operandi, their worldview and the way they conduct business entirely. But from a business standpoint, as a freelancer, you have to be flexible enough to say, you may have to work with some of these outlets. Now, would I want to work for Fox News? Absolutely not. But would I, for example, want to write an article for the New York Times? Sure. So I'm not going to go and entirely castigate the New York Times. Now, again, some people hearing this may say, well, this guy sounds like he's, you know, holding back, like, like, like he, he wants to be part of the mainstream. No, 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 it's not that. It's just that as someone who's been a freelancer, you can't destroy a bridge. You have to keep that bridge intact. 
even if it's rickety, even if it's, you know, um, in disrepair. So I believe in a certain flexibility as a journalist. I believe in criticism, but you never know. You may wind up working for one of these legacy outlets or one of these large mainstream outlets one day. And so you have to be careful as to how you treat them and, and how you look at the profession in general. At least that's my point of view. Again, I'm speaking as someone who's been a freelance journalist right. and a writer. People who are traditional journalists or non-traditional or non-traditional like alternative media and independent media. I'm also an independent journalist, but I'm also a realist. Jeremy, best not uh, best not go bad mouthing Terry Gross if you want to get anywhere in the. Uh... Right. I was going to say uh, about two bits. One about the, um, the um, you know, and maybe even like a side issue of it does being a does being a freelancer because um, kind of force you to because you always you know you always have to be at some point because uh, you you survive on the ideas about you know building a personal brand and kind of this in a very atomized. Um, you know, having to de- deal with the current economy in a, in a very atomized fashion because you're disconnected with everything. Because you know, you you are your own. You know, you're you're a one person shop. The the two bits about um, one bit is about um, not being able to criticize the current hegemonic system. I'm um, uh, because you you yourself for careerist reasons. And but one of the things that I want to tie this back into, say, current American politics, is that you have the example of Ilhan Omar. Who now, because she's got elected, uh, because she uh, can structurally never become president, she uh, she does not have the um, that you know the that that kind of like upper upper you know there's an upper limit to how far she can get, which allows her the ability to say, you know, just to you know full on like call massive ghouls like Elliot Abrams, you know, on their shit to their you know to their face. Um, Mm-hmm. The other, but the other kicker is like you mentioned the New York Times, which is a certain one thing. What about the New York Post? Uh, would I want to write for the New York Post? In th- well, because it's think I think the Times and the Post are kind of two different. I mean, they're they're down the street from each other, aren't they? But it's a uh, I don't know. Well, the Post is right wing conservative, and the Times is I would say a centrist paper. Some people might characterize it as conservative. I would call it centrist. You know, if the Post had a vaguely left. <laughs> section or a vaguely liberal as you know part of page or something like that i would consider it generally speaking probably uh, probably not but again as a freelancer to me it's a matter of i'm looking at it from a platform basis like it's not a matter simply of stating well my uh, ideology my point of view doesn't allow me to to deal with all of these entities. I don't cut myself off from all these entities. Some I do. Again, right-wing entities, I would. Now, if you ask me would I write for National Review, I would say no. If you ask me would I write for uh, Newsmax or Town Hall or or any or Weekly Standard, I don't know if that's still around. Uh, yeah, the, or that, any of those right. Oh, yeah, that's what I thought. Um, or any of these openly right-wing or conservative publications, I would say no. But if you're talking about the larger daily newspapers uh, and larger outlets in general, even with some of their political inclinations being a certain way, like the Post, um, I might consider it. I might consider writing for the Post. That doesn't mean I have to agree with their standards. Doesn't have to mean I have to agree with their ideology or their philosophy. 
but I might consider it. Again, for me, that's a professional decision. I look at it from a professional standpoint. You know, there's ideology involved, but there's also professionalism involved. The sad part about this country is, even as a journalist, that you have to put economic issues and you have to put economic concerns in the forefront. I wish that weren't the case. One of the things I dislike about freelance journalism these days is the whole idea of branding. The whole idea that you have to basically turn yourself into a marketer and promoter. This is what I tell freelancers online. You have to learn how to market yourself and you have to learn how to promote yourself. The fact I'm doing this podcast is a form of marketing. I hate to put it that way, but it really is. Because writers, journalists, reporters have to do that these days. At least freelance ones. Uh, reporters, journalists, and writers do. You really have no choice in the matter. You've got to get out there and you've got to promote yourself and you've got to market yourself. I didn't need to do that when I started writing as a journalist uh, in 1994. I didn't need to do that. All I needed to do was do the work. But I, think, I worked, got more work, kept going. Right, but I know? think the bigger question that, that, that we're kind of struggling with is, you know, is that that need to show deference, for instance, to larger outlets... Isn't that the type of thing that ultimately hurts representative democracy if you're having to um, be circumspect? Be circumspect. Yeah. I mean, if you have to change your narrative in, in such a way that's palatable um, to these large media outlets, is that I mean, is that really the, um, the, the, the function of a representative democracy? I would offer the perspective of, of my wife to some extent. My, we've sort of doubled down on this uh, dying professional journalism, but my wife is a freelance journalist, and she writes for uh, national glossy uh, magazines like uh, Oprah. Actually, she's written for the New York Times, uh, Oprah, Oprah and Vogue and so forth. But, you know, she really has uh, – she's sort of uh, – it's a very difficult uh, uh, to be a freelance journalist, I'm sure you know. Uh, you know, the, it's declining standards there as well and in the magazine world. I mean, she's, she makes, uh, you know, half uh, uh, per word what she did, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and yet, she, you know, she keeps at it. I think you just have to be persistent, even with a message that's a little alternative. So, for example, you know, things that are, she's passionate about include uh, the idea of food justice, the idea that, like, you know, working class and poor people, maybe they have a right to uh, to, to organic, healthy, uh, fresh food and so forth, and, you know, the, maybe food deserts are a problem. So, you know, she, she tries to come up with ways to get that kind of idea, those kind of ideas, uh, stories about that, uh, to make that, uh, you know, sexed up a little bit so that she can uh, get a national research, readership for, for that. Um, but, you know, so, uh, I, yeah, and I think there's diff- just going to be different approaches obviously, uh, for, for how you get uh, placement as, as a freelancer. Uh, I, I see, the I guess, the sadder, bigger uh, question is just being the, the number of opportunities uh, to, do, to do it paid work uh, uh, d- declining in that respect. And, you know, it, so. It's a harder and harder media market. There are le- the outlets have been either folding in terms of newspapers or even some other types of uh, news outlets, or they have uh, cut back on staff uh, they've cut back on employees and mostly reporters. So if there are less media positions uh, and less slots open at newspapers, at TV news stations, um, and radio news, if, if there is much radio news left, and even at online publications, um, then there's less chances for but even those professionals that come out of J school, let alone those who are just looking to be um, journalists who didn't go to journalism school but just went to college and majored in something else. So it's a much harder world out there. 
For those who and, are prepared to uh, run against the tide, I would. I really want to applaud uh, Jeremy for subscribing. I did not know this to my newspaper. Apparently, we have at least one reader, uh, Northwest Labor Press. But I mean, I think you know people. You know, and I, I'm, I'm excited at the idea that when the mainstream even media came under attack by Trump, that some people did respond. People, you know, the subscriptions to the New York Times shot up. The Washington Post is doing well. And so I guess you know I, I would hope that you know uh, listeners to this show you know would would take that on. You know, like find some publications that they're excited about. Um, give give them a ten or fifteen bucks. Get a subscription. You know if. It's an online uh, uh, Oregon, you know, become a Patreon supporter or, uh, you know, uh, you know, contribute now and then. I think it just it, it makes it viable. It makes it so that that space is available for for the next generation or whatever. Right. But it should be said, um, <laughs> folks, you do you really don't need to subscribe to the Times and the Post uh, specifically. There are um, the, the, the Times especially. Um one thing, okay, so that that kind of brings me into, uh, let's call it our, you know, not necessarily wrapping it, but certainly our final topic is what is to be done? What is, you know, what, um, given the state of what we've been talking about, how do we or can we affect or change it at all? And this is an mm-hmm. open, open topic for anybody to uh, feel free to jump in. Depends on what you mean is how, when you say how can we change, you mean how the journalism uh, outlets how the news outlets, how legacy news outlets and and various forms of the news business look at um, look at class or their own class prejudices and their own class point of view. I think partially, but also that we um, in any because we you need a media uh, a media apparatus or something fulfilling that function um, to have a functioning representative democracy. Um, as long as we have something that even you know to the extent that we've ever actually had that, which ain't really all that um, you know that hasn't really been true a hell of a lot of time or the vast majority of the stupid country's right. history. Um, what you know, it's it's kind of a thing where it's it's a terrible situation. But how does one you know how does one either change or or do an end run around or um, I guess it's it's kind of thing where it's you know at some point it's like yeah it sucks but what the you know there there's always got to be a way to either build or to change it. Well, there are two two factors that I would bring up. The first is I think it would be hard to change the legacy outlet or traditional mainstream journalism uh, propensity in regards to how they hire employees, how they hire reporters and journalists. That's I don't want to say it's etched in stone. Maybe it will change, but I think that's a lot harder because the traditional uh, and legacy news outlet tradition has been has changed. As we mentioned before in this program, it went from working class reporters, those who were not really educated. Maybe they had uh, high school educations if they were fortunate uh, to now those who have bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, sometimes even PhDs. Um, I don't know that that changes. Um, I don't know if that kind of process changes. So I think going, I, I think people can hope is that maybe there's a swing back toward hiring people who necessarily aren't Ivy League graduates. Um, you know, that there's less classism within the news profession. Uh, but I, I don't see much of that happening. But there is that hope that maybe classism can be at least diluted within the hiring processes 
of uh, legacy and traditional news organizations. Um, I mean, I'm somebody who went to a state school. And when I was in L.A., I applied to the New York Times L.A. Bureau. And I knew I wasn't going to get hired. I just knew it because I knew I wasn't the kind of person they were looking for. A freelancer who had gone to a state school. They were looking for someone else, maybe an Ivy League or someone who maybe had gone to Stanford or something like that. Um, So maybe with people from different class backgrounds becoming journalists, um, with people from different schools perhaps even, different colleges, perhaps not Princeton, but someone who went to, um, you know, Rutgers or SUNY or something like that. Um, that might be one approach because that might bring in people who have a working class background, people who had a lower middle class background. Uh, just as someone like, uh, Thomas Frank has noted in his books and noted in interviews, you know, we used to have columnists like Mike Waco in Chicago, Herb Kane in San Francisco, uh, Jimmy Breslin in New York, people that to a certain extent were, if not blue collar guys, then maybe lower middle class guys. Now we don't have that development in daily newspapers, that kind of daily column, although there are a lot of columnists, that sort of daily column where the individual is sort of the the heart of the city and comes from a sort of a a lower middle class to working class background is is largely eroded. And if we can return to a little bit more of that, that might be one aspect in regards to, to journalism, the hiring process, hiring people who aren't necessarily Ivy League or or uh, who have gone to elite or top-tier universities or colleges. So if there are uh, any editors from, out there, be sure uh, to, to hopefully take take that advice. Uh, you know, I, I myself have been rejected by some of the finest universities in the country, so I, I have a I have sympathy to <laughs> what you what you just said. But uh, you know, I guess if you to, to answer Jeremy's question, if um, you know, in terms of what, what what is to be done, I mean, I I guess I just you know, go back to what a little bit of what I said earlier. I I think that you know, I, hopefully people will become uh, voracious consumers of, of news. Uh, of, of, and I would say uh, put, particularly put out a plug for local news. I think a lot. A lot of us are very excited about sort of national goings on. We're feeding a habit with Twitter and and another media uh, constant, uh, you know, sort of outrage cycle and so forth. And yet, the, the area where we actually, as citizens, have the most uh, potential impact is at the local level. Uh, you know, how many folks can name their state representative or their state senator or or the or the mayor or the city council and so forth? And I'm not su- suggesting that there needs to be like some kind of a I don't know uh, a quiz or something like that, but to, to to be considered a good citizen. But I do think that you know uh, those are the you know, to the extent that we're aware of what's going on locally, you know, we do have the uh, ability to uh, to take out an incumbent uh, state senator who uh, sat on a rent control bill, or you know, there's all sorts of local examples like that. But I think that it has to start with information. It has to start with being informed. So I, th- I, th- I suppose to to subscribe to all sorts of great magazines and local local newspapers, or find your way to the lo- local news. I think I would definitely uh, urge that. I would also just again urge to people to think about that that uh, the the media is not as closed as I. I think some people have pessimistically believed uh, two ideas, uh, transformative ideas from the left and so forth. I think, if, if anything, really the wind is in our favor. There's an interest in that by the practitioners of media. And so I think for people to become, you know, to train themselves to be effective communicators for the causes that they're passionate about and then try to get access to the media. I, I mean, it, it, all it takes is a phone call. All it takes is, you know, a press release or really a fo- follow-up with a phone call to m- develop a personal relationship uh, as an advocate with a journalist who are usually overworked and would love to get a reliable source of interesting information uh, that would that would help them uh, meet their deadlines. So I, I guess I would that would be my what is to be done uh, suggestion. 
Candy, any comment? Uh, and let me just add my second point, because they raised the first one in terms of hiring and journalism. The second point is what has to happen within American society, whether it's on a local level, but even on national level, is the building of alternative news outlets and platforms. So we need a return to a labor press. We need a return to a real left-wing press. We need a return to um, media outlets that reflect points of view that are of benefit to the population. The reason why a lot of news goes unreported is because not only uh, some of the factors that we noted before, shrinking newsroom staffs, um, shrinking priorities in terms of news, one leads to the other usually, but but also um, the priorities of those who edit and publish and the producers and the owners. Their priorities are not looking at factors like minimum wage jobs and low wage jobs and the low wage economy that we have. They're not even looking at environmental issues. Uh, to her credit, someone like Rachel Maddow on her, Maddow on her show did feature, um, uh, she had a couple of segments, I think this was a couple of years ago, where she looked at uh, trains of oil, uh, transporting oil that would blow up in certain parts of the country and, and how this isn't covered as much as it should. You know, these kinds of incidents shouldn't be. Because, and, and of course, recently there was a fire in Houston right. that released all kinds of uh, noxious and hazardous chemicals. So I think we have to look at building alternative news outlets, platforms, whether it's newspapers, whether it's websites, uh, whether it's um, even um, something like Democracy Now. Some people may not like that, but something that's sort of TV or video-oriented. Right. And so that's a two-pronged approach that I have. All right. Uh, sorry to cut you off, but Don needs to take off. Don, uh, where can folks find you or could follow up? Absolutely. Yeah, just for, for the for those who have any interest in uh, mostly local but also somewhat national uh, sort of labor union coverage, I would definitely love to have folks uh, check us out online at nwlaborpress.org. Put your email in there. Get our uh, get, get our, our stuff for free. Uh, follow us on Twitter, uh, Facebook, wherever you like. Um, would love, love to have uh, folks be interested. Excellent. Thank you. Candy, do you have any comment? or? Yeah, uh, I think ditto to what Albert said in terms of uh, hiring folks with uh, a broad range of, of lived experiences that, 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 that could inform their journalism. I, I would love to see more news outlets that are explicitly subjective and say, you know, we're, <laughs> this is being reported uh, by somebody who's on the side of the working class. And that's the perspective that we're taking on this in, in this particular paper. Um, that would mean my, you know, that's something that I would like to see. And then the second thing, I'm just fucking tired of Russiagate. So I really hope that we could get over that. I think that would immediately <laughs> prop up the integrity of the U.S. media system. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. Oh, God. Uh, and, and, I sure hope it does. Yeah. Uh, and my only comment is... People talk about breaking up. I just say full on, just nationalize Facebook and Google because they're, Facebook and Google accumulate, you know, just kind of just hoover up 90% of all advertising revenue that uh, would otherwise go to, you know, just other, you know, even like trad media sources. So like everything has to, you know, all the money there until we start changing a lot more things. Anyway, well, I guess coming to a close, this has been a hell of a hell of a conversation. I want to thank everybody for uh, spending some time on a, on a um, on a Sunday to talk about this. One of the one of the things 
one of the, uh, the the closest thing to to a recurring segment we have on the show is recommendations and endorsements. So I want to put the call out. Do you have any? Do you uh, do y'all have anything you've been really digging on lately that you would think that other people should find out about? I it's easy for me to say that people should. Um, well, I think one thing um, that people should read alternative media sources in their local city or town. And uh, I haven't been to Portland, but I'm sure you have alternative publications there, if I'm not mistaken. Am I right about that? Yeah, we have two alt-weeklies and a, and a, and a, and a couple smaller papers and even like one local uh, one local labor paper. Right. And see, I used to write for Honolulu Weekly. I wrote several articles for Honolulu Weekly, so I've written for an alternative weekly. And I still consider that very important. When you talk about media in this country, it, those are very important. So I would say alternative media, that's very important. Uh, check out your alt, your alt media and your independent media in this country, uh, in, in the town, in the, you know, uh, in the, in the place that you live and support them if you can too. Uh, but also another thing I would do is when you're on YouTube and when you're online, also look at alternative and independent media there. And also a kind of news dissecting kind of shows. I like to look at different shows like Jimmy Dore, um, I think of the Humanist Report, um, Kyle Polinsky. I like to see those perspectives from people who aren't journalists. And so people may wonder why a journalist like me would do that. But, uh, you know, I'm interested in seeing other perspectives. It's easy for me to read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, um, Time, Newsweek. I know what to expect from those news sources. As someone who's been in the trade, uh, who's been in the industry, I know what basically what the structure is. I know how the game is played. But when I hear from people who are outside of the news business digesting and analyzing and dissecting news, I I kind of get a certain perspective and I go, okay, that's interesting how they how they see the story or that's interesting how they're looking at this story. Uh, and I think those kind of dissectors have done a good job in trying to keep the major media, the legacy media, the traditional media honest, or at least trying to keep them honest. Um, I'm not saying to go and look at them as your main source of information any more than I would suggest that you should go to the Daily Show to do that. But uh, sorry, I'm long-winded, but um, those that's what I would suggest. Um, in terms of, uh, if we're talking about recommendations, um, Counterpunch, I subscribe to Counterpunch. Um, Truthout is a good outlet. Color Lines, Democracy Now, of course. And uh, Black Agenda Report. I got to say, the analysis that comes from uh, folks like Ajamu Baraka um, and, um, uh, you know, that group of folks, uh, it's it's really... Like, for instance, I'll, I'll give you an example. Ajamu Baraka was the first... Um, person to uh to propose that 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 bernie sanders uh primary run was really uh part of a general strategy by the the democratic party to just uh he was a sheepdog you know to get folks ex- excited um for the election but knowing full well that you know he wasn't he wasn't supposed to win and so that type of and i don't think um you know i don't think any of those folks are are um proper journalists you know, but their analysis comes from um, a certain type of education, right? But that that education comes from their lived experiences as black radicals in the United States. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is read Black Agenda Report and <laughs> listen to their podcast. This is really good. 
Yeah, I would recommend. Uh, I think I recommended it before, but uh, as always, check out Citations Needed, done by uh, Adam Johnson and uh, Nima Shiraz. They are uh, a couple of them are. They're also writers for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, and uh, a book that I would recommend is again that's uh, Lewis Lewis H. Laplum's uh, The Wish for Kings: Democracy at Bay. It was I think it's out of print. It came out in, like published in like 1993. It gets into um, kind of like him looking back on. Uh, a couple decades of being a reporter in around, um, going from a small time New York City one to uh, doing some work in Washington, D.C., and just getting into exactly how much of, um, you know, how much of it really was Gore Vidal's old line that, like, the Washington Post was the court rag for Versailles on the Potomac. So, all right. And um, let's see, Albert, how can folks get a hold of you? Or do you have anything other, anything, anything in particular to uh, to plug? Well, uh, I'm on Twitter at Critic Incorporated. That's my Twitter handle. I'm on Facebook. Um, you can contact me there. If you want to read my blog, I have a blog on medium.com. Um, that's there. I think the last thing I wrote was about the college admission scandal. Um, and uh, beyond that, um, since I'm retired, uh, not much to plug, quote unquote. Although, um, Considering coming out of retirement, I'm not sure because um, I'd, I'd like to move back to Seattle, actually. But um, so maybe I'll come out of retirement. I'm not, that may very well have to happen. At this point, I don't. Even, I'm seriously wondering if it's cheaper to live in live in Hawaii or or Seattle because it's. Um... Um, well, you know, every you know rates are going up across the country. You know, I'm reading about, I've heard this from people on Facebook myself, everywhere across the country, you know, rents are going up. Denver, uh, San Francisco, of course, uh, Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles. Right. Uh, Hawaii is one of the most expensive states in the country. So it's, you know, the cost of housing here, I mean, the per capita housing prices are over $800,000. So, and, and you have the price of food and everything else. So this is not a cheap place. So when I lived in California, which was over 10 years ago, even, even other, you know, before that, LA actually seemed cheap to me, to be brutally honest, compared to living in Honolulu. Gotcha. Candy? Uh, I just want to make one more recommendation. I just got uh, Red Star of the Third World in the mail by Vijay Prashad. Um, and it's all about how the October Revolution inspired uh, other communist movements. And so I just wanted to give a shout out. I really love Vijay Prashad. He's one of these... Um, uh, he's one of these guys who's um, critical but still optimistic, and it's it's hard to find in the left. Like people who um, who find who who consider it um, central to their philosophy to be optimistic. You know, it's so easy for us to be cynical. So, just want to give a plug to him. He's great. Excellent. Uh, how, how can uh, do you want to give out any sort of contact info or not? Um, you don't want to talk to me. I'm pretty boring. Fair enough. <laughs> And uh, you can get a hold of us. Our email address is givingthemike at gmail.com. We do have a Patreon because we're a leftist podcast. So, of course, we have a Patreon that you, too, can help us put us out, uh, put out the stuff where um, we, you know, even as low as a dollar a month can uh, can help us make this. And we also have a slightly larger tier 
tier of a couple a couple dollars more where you can hear bonus audio from all the episodes and even like a couple little um it's, it's not quite um yeah i can i guess we you can call say that we're putting out bonus uh, bonus episodes through there because at least the uh, all the extra audio we're putting out certainly does is an episode length so check us out on patreon at patreon.com slash giving the mic uh twitter and facebook we're at giving the mic um yeah, and this was, and once again, I think this is, this has been a hell of a time. Uh, Albert, I want to uh, like to thank, well, I'd like to thank both uh, Albert and Don and, and Candy for joining us on a uh, some uh, on a uh, lovely Sunday afternoon. Thank you for spending your time talking to us. Thank you. Thank you. All right, and without further ado, all right, uh, good night, ladies and gentlemen, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs>